traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight's episode of the Twilight Zone podcast is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. The title, as you may recognize, refers to a most respected Twilight Zone episode that takes place in a little town called Peaksville. And on a given day, when it was first broadcast on November 3rd, 1961, this episode was pushed out into the world all alone, onto the television screens of America. People who hadn't read the story that it was based on weren't entirely sure where it came from. But as time went on, they became sure of one thing, that this episode of The Twilight Zone became a monster. Not just because of its popularity with fans of the show, but because it had a life beyond its place, as the eighth episode of season three. Now I'd like to introduce you to some of the people who made this episode happen. First of all, Jerome Bixby, the man who wrote the original story, and then Rod Serling, who adapted it for the screen. And then there's James Sheldon, who probably had more control over the direction of the episode than almost anyone. Oh yes, I did forget something, didn't I? I forgot to introduce you to the actor. This is the actor. His name is Bill Moomy, and he's now 63 years old. But as this interview from metvlegends.com shows, he's never far from the Twilight Zone. It's a good life, playing Anthony Fremont, who has the ability to read everyone's thoughts, and if he's displeased with those thoughts, he'd mess you up. He'd send you to the cornfield, or he'd turn you into a jack-in-the-box, or whatever he, or he'd just put you on fire, or whatever he might do. Anthony Fremont was a character that I loved playing, because even though he wasn't Superman or Zorro, he wasn't a caped superhero or anything like that, but he was the epitome of the most powerful superhero you could imagine. So to me, even though it's not a hero, but to me, at seven years old, you know, playing Anthony was just really kind of what I had wanted to get into TV to do in the first place. Oh yes, I did forget something, didn't I? I forgot to introduce you to the monster. This is the monster. His name is Anthony Fremont. He's six years old with a cute little boy face and blue guileless eyes. But when those eyes look at you, you'd better start thinking happy thoughts because the mind behind them is absolutely in charge. This is the Twilight Zone. Previously on the Twilight Zone podcast, I've read the short story, It's a Good Life by Jerome Bixby. That short story was written in 1953 and published in the second edition of one of those great American pulp magazines called Star Science Fiction Stories. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that it's actually very close to its Twilight Zone counterpart, 
but there are some differences. In that story, Anthony Fremont is only actually three years old, which was, of course, changed for the Twilight Zone version, in which Anthony is six. So it does actually alter the story in some ways. In Jerome Bixby's story, perhaps because he is so young, Anthony doesn't actually say anything at all until the end, when he just says two words, bad man. Now I took the liberty of changing that for my reading, partially because I can't really do the voice of a three-year-old, but also because I thought it would be a great nod to Bill Moomy to have his voice in there. But the truth of it is, in the original version, he does actually only say those two words. Now the origin of It's a Good Life in literature, as told by Jerome Bixby, is actually quite short. In The Twilight Zone Companion, he said, At this late date, I don't remember how the idea for It's a Good Life came to me. I wrote it over a weekend in 1953, with no sleep Saturday night. Oddly, Serling did the screenplay, then bought the rights to the story a few days later. So there's a slight trepidation there on Serling's part, perhaps, where he's maybe seeing if it works first before he actually buys the rights, because, as we'll find out as we go through this, it was considered to be a little bit different from other Twilight Zones. So the literary Anthony Fremont is just this toddler who has the run of the town and its surroundings. And we get this great scene where he goes out into the cornfield and he's created this grove. And again, it's very fitting with a three-year-old because he connects with the animals in a very simple, instinctive way. And he's not bad. He wants to give these creatures what they want and he does so. Because humans are complicated. They don't always say what they mean or they have bad thoughts about him. So this scene where he goes out into the cornfield and he creates this space for the animals has been completely lost from the Twilight Zone episode, but you can see how it would have been very difficult to bring it to the screen in those days, so it's quite understandable that it's gone. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that it seems that Sailing found it tricky to adapt the story, because he does such a masterful job of it. But I think he did feel that it was somewhat unique and it did warrant a slightly different type of introduction. So what did end up on screen is perhaps a little different from the average Twilight Zone in terms of its length and structure, but, you know, not drastically so. But the initial drafts presented things quite differently. Now Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic documents that Rod Serling actually wrote a number of different revisions before settling down to the one that was actually used in the episode. And Martin Grams Jr. recreates that in the book, so Serling's narration starts, this is Peaksville, Ohio, on a hot July afternoon. And then it says that at this moment an old woman, Aunt Amy, comes out of the front porch and sits down, rocking slowly back and forth, fanning herself with an old, dilapidated fan, and sailing then goes on. At a first perfunctory glance, and on the surface, you may think that this is a town like all towns, 
and that the little boy over there, Anthony by name, appears to be like any little boy. And then the camera pans over to Rod Sailing, who stands near the porch, and he goes on. But actually none of you have ever seen Peaksville, Ohio. It's a place not to be found on a map. And those fields of grain and wheat and barley that you've seen growing, that isn't the only crop. Something else grows in Peaksville. And for want of a better term, we're forced to call it simply horror. But let Anthony's father tell you about it. Everyone just calls him Dad Fremont. We'll let him tell the story and we'll let him describe the horror. So then, Dad Fremont actually breaks the fourth wall and starts to speak to the audience directly. And he tells about how the doctor helped deliver Anthony and almost by impulse attempted to kill him when he was a baby. And that by the age of six, Anthony had destroyed the world and left only the village. And he says, Anthony's mind will snap at you and he'll do most anything most anything at all. And then he tells the story of how Aunt Amy once yelled at Anthony and he turned her into this smiling vacant thing. And then Bill Soames turns up on his bike and Sailing continues his narration. He says, in just a moment, we'll get an even closer look at Anthony Fremont and the people of the village and the village itself. Peaksville, Ohio, in a world in which nothing exists, except Peaksville, a world that Anthony Fremont manufactured, a nightmare that lies at the center of the Twilight Zone. So there's a lot of sort of backwards and forwards with that open narration you can see sailing, maybe struggling with it a little bit because he uses this device of Dad Fremont actually speaking to the audience directly now, I'm kind of glad he didn't go with that. I think what we end up with is fine. It's a little different without being that different, where you actually have a character speaking to the audience. I mean, I imagine by now we'd have probably accepted it as part of the Twilight Zone. But I think what we ended up with is much better. So we know that the monster that Sailing speaks of is a six-year-old boy. But it must have been great to see that reveal for the first time where Sailing introduces Anthony. But it's also Sailing's delivery that makes this one special as well. Now the intro itself is about two minutes long, so it's quite long for the Twilight Zone. And I like getting to hear Rod Sailing that little bit longer. And it starts off pleasantly enough, this is Peaksville, Ohio. But by the time we get to Aunt Amy sitting staring vacantly in her chair, things have gotten that bit more sinister. Now as we move through the story of It's a Good Life, there are a couple of tangents along the way. And part of the lore of this episode now is that some of this opening was actually used for the theme park ride, The Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror. Hollywood, 1939. Amid the glitz and the glitter of a bustling young movie town at the height of its golden age, the Hollywood Tower Hotel was a star in its own right, a beacon for the show business elite. Now, something is about to happen that will change all that.
on an evening very much like the one we have just witnessed. Tonight's story in the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a maintenance service elevator, still in operation, waiting for you. We invite you, if you dare, to step aboard because in tonight's episode, you are the star. And this elevator travels directly to the Twilight Zone. I went on the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror a couple of times in Florida many years ago, and I do have very fond memories of it. Sadly, the California one is no more. I was there recently, and uh, it was very sad to see that it was gone. But watching it now, watching the footage that they use and the actual story that they build into the ride, you realise that with modern effects they could probably make a much better video than they actually use in it. But it is a lot of fun and when I went when I was younger I wasn't quite the Twilight Zone fan that I am now. So the fact that the story in the ride itself, when you think about it, isn't particularly Twilight Zone itself, it's more like a kind of haunted house tale. But irrespective of that, you know, it's just nice to be immersed in the Twilight Zone with Rod Serling speaking directly to you and to go in and be a part of it all. But back to our episode. Before we even truly begin, I'm going to make another comparison with the short story. In it, Anthony's mother remembers that Doc Bates, three years earlier when Anthony was born, dropped him, screamed, and then tried to kill him. And then there's another line that says that they tell the local kids that Anthony is a nice little goblin, but they must never go near him. So for me, the first thing that actually comes into my mind is that Anthony in the story is actually grotesque in some way. Now, they don't say that explicitly, so... It might just be how I've interpreted it, but the reaction of the doctor, especially to a newborn child, you know, why else would he react that way? It could be like in that original version of the opening narration that the doctor just seemed to act on instinct. He knew something was wrong and it just drives him a little mad. So that's a possibility, but... What I find with Jerome Bixby's story is that it is a masterclass in very slight suggestion, in letting the audience imagine what the horror is. There are several times where Bixby takes you to a point, but then stops and lets you fill in the blanks. And for some reason, that's where my mind goes with this part. So as I said earlier, in the short story, Anthony is three years old. But in the TV show, he's six. So I think as well as it making sense for them to use a six-year-old in the show because they would be easier to work with than a three-year-old, especially when that six-year-old is Bill Moomy, I actually think it makes more sense, story-wise, to have Anthony be about six. Now granted, a three-year-old with these powers might be an even more frightening prospect than a six-year-old because a three-year-old is more or less pure instinct and want, whereas you would hope you could reason with a six-year-old a bit more. But what really makes me think that him being six makes more sense in the story is that in that original, they talk about how they keep planting their crops every year and usually 
one thing will grow enough for them to live on and one year they had too much grain which they had to dump off into the abyss. All of these things make more sense if they've had a few more summers to work this out. If Anthony's only three years old then they've really only had a couple of years to experience this because if his developmental rate is the same as a normal child then for a lot of this time he's only going to be a baby anyway so I don't know maybe that's putting a bit too much thought into these things howdy Anthony mighty good to see you today mighty good and it's such a good day isn't it a real good day it's a terrible hot day though it's a terrible hot day Oh, I wouldn't say that, Aunt Amy. No, sir, I wouldn't say that at all. It's fine. It's just fine. It's a real good day. What are you doing, Anthony? My, that's real good, whatever it is. I was just wondering what you were doing. I made a gopher with three heads. See him? Yeah. Yeah, my, my, he's a real fine one. I ain't never seen a gopher with three heads before. I'll make him dead now. I'm tired of playing with him. Be dead. Gopher, you be dead. Instead of playing with a rat who he is making eat himself, Anthony has made a gopher with three heads. And here's where I think the episode really has the tone of the short story down very well. That use of suggestion. All we see is that rubbery tail in Anthony's hand and the troubled face of Bill Soames as Anthony makes the creature dead. Part of the decision making in how to film this scene could have been that they can only make so much realistic in television at the time. But it also could be because Sailing and Sheldon have really been able to tap into that suggestive tone of the short story. In unlocking the door to a television classic, Bill Moomy says, The gopher had hair, and it was truly disgusting. They only used the tail, but maybe that was because it was too disgusting, and they feared repercussions from the viewers. So even this early on in the episode, we're starting to hear that familiar use of language. It's good. It's real good. And always said with a, painted on smile that looks almost painful to keep in place. And I think the actor who plays Bill Soames does a really good job with that pain delivery. But it's interesting, if IMDB is correct, this is his last screen role, and he only ever had four of them in the first place between 1957 and this in 1961. So he actually lived until 2006. I guess his life took him on a different path, but if you're going to end your career, what a show to end it on. Another very important character in the life of Anthony Fremont is Aunt Amy, and she's played by Alice Frost, who returns to the Twilight Zone after playing Sally in the 16mm Shrine. Now, Amy was that favourite aunt of Anthony's, who seemed to have a bit more control over him than everyone else until he got annoyed at her, and he thought at her. And the way that it's explained to us, it isn't that Anthony has formed the thought in his mind 
that he's going to make Amy a particular way or do a particular thing to her. He just mentally lashes out at her in anger and this is another example of how accurate the story is to what a child would actually be like. How a child will lash out physically without much thought but for Anthony it's mentally and the result is now Amy is less sharp, more vague. It's like all of her edges have been dulled and her mind clouded. And Alice Frost gives Amy this perfect vacant air as she sits smiling into nothing. And so Amy will often forget herself and complain about things and will need to be guided back on track. Where's Anthony? I think he went into the barn. I keep telling him he shouldn't go there, but he keeps on. Amy. It's a real good thing that Anthony goes in the barn. A real good thing. But Agnes, he isn't even around. Now, you even don't have so, to keep saying Even it. so, it's nice that he goes in the barn. It's real nice. We mustn't think anything bad about him, Amy. But he isn't even around. Amy, dear, you know as well as I do that sometimes... Sometimes he can hear what we're thinking, no matter where he is. So you just keep thinking real nice things. And tonight we'll have Dan Hollis's birthday party, and, and we'll just have a, a delightful time. Just a, a real nice, delightful time. But it's a terrible hot day. I hope it cools off by tonight. I mentioned earlier that great scene in the story where Anthony goes into the cornfield to help the animals. So with that scene gone, something else needs to take its place. And what we get is a scene between Anthony and his father, who is played by Twilight's own regular, John Larch. Now John Larch had a very varied career. He actually he was actually a big radio star playing Captain Star of Space, which is a very bombastic and slightly cheesy affair where he is this upstanding hero, Captain Star. And it was this that really put him on the map, and from that he was able to transition into television and film. I'm not sure he really had a signature role, or one that came over this side of the pond at least, but he just gave the impression of being a solid, dependable actor, who you could really rely on if you needed someone to add some weight to something. Now this is his final Twilight Zone appearance after previously being in Perchance to Dream and Dust. And for me, I think this is his best one. In this scene where Anthony first comes into the room and Mr. Fremont is washing his face, he's every bit the father having some light-hearted, playful talk with his son. But as the scene goes on, he gradually slips in these odd little pauses and looks, which are in line with the rest of the scared Peaksville residents. And then he goes into that familiar patter about everything being real good. Well, howdy, Anthony. I was looking for you a bit ago. Your mama said you was out in a barn. I was looking at the cow. Oh, oh, that's good. That's... Real good that you were looking at the cow. Now, uh, you weren't playing any tricks on your old dad, were you? I mean, you remember last year when you when we had the pigs? I turned them into monsters. <laughs> oh, doggone if you didn't. Funny looking things, too. 
but good things, Anthony, real good things. And it's good that you've done that. Oh, it's real good. Television night tonight. I'm going to make television for everybody. Oh, you sure are. And everybody's looking forward to it, too. Just like they do every week when you make television. And we're going to have that surprise birthday party for Dan Hollis, too. Such a great central scene in the story. And like I said, if it wasn't for the odd inflection or line here and there, it's quite an accurate portrayal of how dads will have that light-hearted banter with their kids. But then there's just that little turn of the screw that shows you that Mr. Fremont is trying to keep things on that level. And it's a great example of how Sailing could adapt his style to different types of material. I think he really gels with the language and tone of Jerome Bixby's story and the two are seamless. So halfway through the episode, we come to television night. And this is the scene that will take us right up until the end of the episode. Everyone comes to the Fremont house and has these pained expressions on their faces as Anthony makes them watch two dinosaurs fighting on screen, complete with blood pouring from their wounds. So this stop motion footage was created by Jack Harris, who was the same man who did the effects in the Odyssey of Flight 33 when they fly past that dinosaur. Now in the original script, the television seemed to be more in line with what he created in the short story. It said, hunched over on the floor is Anthony, sitting directly in front of it and obviously manipulating it. For on the screen are grotesque colour patterns, weird formless lines and shadows. On occasion, a passing face that is only partially humanoid. And at intervals, there is a sound of some kind of strange, discordant music which Anthony also projects. So a little more similar to the short story where it was just shapes and sounds. But in this version, while the two dinosaurs are fighting, it does look a bit tame, but I think the impression was that the people watching it were a little bit appalled by the violence they were being subjected to. So when I read the short story a few episodes ago, I made that section kind of a mixture of the two as if Anthony was projecting all of the violent, horrible things he'd done onto the screen in amongst these images. That's all the television there is. Oh, it was wonderful, Anthony. Wasn't it, everyone? Oh, that was really good. Wasn't Anthony's television wonderful tonight? Oh, it's just the best. It was much better than the old television. Much better. And now, the big surprise for Dan's birthday. Go ahead, Ethel. Give your hubby the big surprise. As well as it being television night, it's also the birthday of one of the townspeople, Dan Hollis. And he was played by a very prolific actor called Don Kiefer, who we only lost in 2014. Now, his first credit was in 1947, and he just never stopped working after that. This is his first of three Twilight Zones. Next up was Passage on the Lady Anne. And then after that, from Agnes with Love. And Dan's birthday present is a record. What's this? Perry Como. Well, I haven't heard Perry Como in years and years. Happy birthday, darling. Happy birthday. 
Hey, you better be careful. I'm holding a priceless object. Look, do you think we could play it? Gosh, what I'd give to hear some new music. Well, just the first part, the orchestra part, before Como sings. I don't think we'd better, Dan. After all, we don't know just where the singing comes in. It'd be taking too much of a chance. Better wait till we get home. It's good I can't play it here. Oh, yes, it's good. It's very good. There's just something so special, I think, about Don Kiefer's reaction to that present, the Perry Como record. No doubt in his old life he would have been happy with it, but he has such a genuine, joyous reaction to it because it is a link back to his old life when you could get new things and listen to music when you wanted to and it takes him mentally back to that time and his joy is amplified until reality sets in again. But it's beautifully performed as is everything else that Don Kiefer does in the episode. So next, Pat Riley plays some piano for everyone, and Pat Riley is played by Max Showalter. Here he's credited as Casey Adams. But what I always find amusing about Pat Riley is it's almost as if he's forgotten how to smile. He just fixes his face into this tortured grimace that only really has a shadow of a smile left in it. And even only then, sometimes. Don't make any noise when the music's playing. I don't like any noise when the music's playing. As the situation in the house becomes more and more tense, this is probably a good time to talk about Anthony himself, played by Bill Moomy. Of course, we've already seen Moomy in the Twilight Zone Long Distance Call, which was a surprisingly dark episode. And Moomy is good in that. But I think in this he really comes into his own. He can be the regular kid as we see in those exchanges with John Larch. But he really knows how to turn it on when he has to. And the dip in the tone of his voice when he warns Dan Hollis to keep the noise down is just pitch perfect. Later on when he turns him into the jack in the box his tone dips halfway through his delivery. And I think this role really cements Mumi's place as Twilight Zone royalty and because of his young age when it was made he's still now a youthful mid-sixties icon of the show and so much more and he has this very distinctive stare and James Sheldon in the Twilight Zone companion said Bill just loved doing all that stuff with his eyes and Buck Houghton recalled it seemed to have caught on in a lot of ways around the set when somebody would goof People would say, well, that's a good thing you did. Which they would always say to Bill Moomy when he killed a cow or whatnot. That's a good thing you did. James Sheldon, who directed Long Distance Call, directed um, It's a Good Life. And I had worked with Cloris Leachman previously on the, the Loretta Young show. So it was a comfortable gathering of folks. And uh, <laughs> uh, I remember... I mean, it's a silly memory, but I'll share it with you. My, I, we, we lived in Beverly Wood and we shot that out at like Universal or something. I don't, I can't remember where we shot it, but 
my mom had this pink 59 Cadillac. She drove a pink 59 Cadillac. And I was even at that age, I was kind of embarrassed to be seen in that car. It was huge. And I used to sit on the top of the, there were no seatbelts in those days. And you'd, I would sit on the top where the speakers were. And I was so little, I'd curl up where the speakers were and we'd listen to KFWB and I'd like listen to the Beach Boys and Ricky Nelson and stuff. But I remember driving to and from that gig using Anthony's powers to make the lights green. I mean, I, I carried Anthony free. There's two characters I've probably carried with me, which is silly. But, uh, you know, one is Anthony Fremont. The other is Will Robinson. But, boy, I loved playing Anthony Fremont. And I completely got what he was. Even as a, there was no, I don't get this or I'm just going to hit my mark and blah, blah, blah. I understood that everybody was in total fear of this guy because he knew exactly what you were thinking moment to moment. And man, if he wasn't happy, you were in trouble. And that was so much fun for me. Oh, I loved that show. I loved that show. So as I said, Bill Moomy is still a youthful early to mid-60s man and he's actually very active in music over the past few years and he started a new group called The Action Skulls and their new release is coming out soon. Now as Dan gets more and more drunk he gets more and more animated and angry. If you ask me if I have a favourite scene in this show I think I have two. The first is that exchange that I mentioned between Mr Fremont and Anthony in the bedroom. And the other one is this, I think Don Kiefer is just amazing in it. But if you look around as well, everyone is working, everyone in the background is bringing something to it, just adding layers to this whole thing. And as he talks, as Don steps up, who is it who almost picks up something from the fireplace in the background to kill Anthony? It's Aunt Amy. You. You and her, you had him. You had to go have him. Monster, you. You dirty little monster. You murderer. <laughs> you think about me. Go ahead, Anthony. You think bad thoughts about me. And maybe some man in this room some man with guts. Somebody who's so sick to death of living in this kind of place and willing to take a chance. Will sneak up behind you and lay something heavy across your skull and end this once and for all. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. You think that? Go ahead, Anthony. I'm a very bad man. Keep thinking that. Somebody sneak up behind him. Somebody end this now while he's thinking about me. <laughs> Won't somebody take a lamp or a bottle or something and end this? You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. Originally, Dan Hollis wasn't going to turn into a jack-in-the-box. He was going to turn into a cobra, but I guess this is a, an easier effect to do. So this is 
like Mumi's previous episode, some really dark, dark stuff. Mr. Freeman says, wishing into the cornfield, Anthony, he's trying to make him have some mercy and wish death upon Dan. So in 1961, we have a primetime television show with a child killing animals and people with his powers and adults contemplating killing him. Why do you think that episode resonates with people? Because it's great. <laughs> because everyone in the cast is just so good. John Larch and Cloris Leachman and I, forgive me for forgetting some of the Max Schumwalter and, oh, and, and you know, it's based on a great story by Jerome Bigsby and, and a, a teleplay by Rod Serling and it's scares the shit out of you and it's black and white and that most of the uh, you know special effects are left to your imagination which I think is great about the Twilight Zone there are episodes of the Twilight Zone where okay here's the mask and here's the thing and I think those are weaker than the ones where your own mind has to play you know when I when Anthony turns him into a jack-in-the-box you just basically see a shadow you know you see a a beat of that that head, but it's mostly left to your imagination, and uh, the choices there were just just great. And I, I, I you know, there's a lot of people who want to explain the, the the hidden meaning of that show that undisciplined children or the undisciplined United States will turn. I mean, all that stuff that may be well and good, but to me, he was just the ultimate mutant, and he was cranky. Yeah, I loved that show. Really, really proud to be a part of that one. So what does it all mean? What's it all about? Well, in his book, Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, Douglas Brody says this, This classic indicates a change in attitude toward young people. Anthony Fremont serves as a prototype for Sailing's revised view of the post-Dr. Spock generation, a gross exaggeration of every child whose parents opted for appeasement of their offspring's whims. That zone was, at least by implication, about the changing face of America is inherent in Sailing's opening to the script he fashioned from Jerome Bixby's short story. Standing in front of a large map of the US, Sailing points out the small town of Peaksville, Ohio, a mid-American enclave, with old-fashioned buildings and cornfields, one more homeward. Now, though, we witness its dark underbelly. It's not the adults who have soured the place, but surprisingly, a child. So that's one interpretation that Anthony is the product of this changing way, this movement away from harsh discipline and indulging children in their whims. There's always going to be this debate about where the line is between nurturing and discipline and so on. But a listener to the Twilight Zone podcast called Chad also has quite an interesting thought about what he thinks it all means. Greetings, Tom. This is Chad here with a few thoughts on It's a Good Life, written by Rod Serling and directed by James Sheldon. I just watched this haunting episode for the first time, and it left me with a lot to think about. I found myself empathizing with all the characters at different times. This episode is dreadful, terrifying, but at times a little comedic. We're drawn into the world of six-year-old Anthony, who has an entire town of adults subjugated to terror and unctuous, obsequious obedience because of his wrathful and godlike supernatural powers. 
We see Anthony as a monster and also as a child, when like a child, he sadly laments having no friends to play with. When his father carefully reminds him that he sent his last friends to the cornfields, a euphemism for death or something worse, we see him again as a monster. The terror of the townspeople is ubiquitous, and the tone is generally ominous. But there is a glimmer of comedy, too. The discomfort and disgust of the adults when they're forced to watch the dinosaur films on television night felt to me genuinely funny. But soon I felt the mortal terror again as Anthony terrorized the sweat-drenched piano player who knew that he had better play with what Anthony wanted or else. I felt for Don Hollis, who on his birthday built up the alcoholic courage to confront Anthony directly. The camera seems to look up at Don as he stands up to Anthony, but the shadows drawn on his contorting face also make him appear dangerous, drunk, and menacing. We simply wouldn't be told what side, if any, here to choose. One of Anthony's victims, an older woman, was so moved by Don's courage that she stealthily gripped a fire poker and stood behind Anthony's back. Serling and director Sheldon brilliantly did the improbable here and made us, or at least me, root for this old woman who was broken by fear. We want her to take the blunt instrument and use it to split the little boy's skull. This episode always makes us wonder, who exactly is the monster? Is it the boy that terrorizes? Is it the adults who refuse to stand up to him? Or now, is it us, the viewers, who want to see an old woman bludgeon a child to death? In the end, she can't bring herself to do it, and Anthony wrathfully turns Don on his birthday into a ghastly jack-in-the-box and sends him to the cornfield. His reign of terror goes on. This episode felt like a masterpiece, but what did it mean? If your theory of reward and punishment is the guide to the Twilight Zone, then did the people deserve their suffering and fear because they didn't collectively stand up to Anthony? Those that did stand up to Anthony alone certainly weren't rewarded for it. Ultimately, I didn't know what lesson, if any, the show was trying to impart. But there was a strong and disquieting metaphor woven into this episode for me. Serling began by describing the, quote, dark ages that the fear of Anthony has caused. Anthony is all-knowing. He knows even your thoughts, and he must be placated lest his merciless wrath fall upon you. Everyone that suffers his wrath was made to feel that they deserved their suffering. They didn't think the correct thoughts, didn't smile enough, and didn't follow Anthony's irascible will. Is it such a stretch here that Anthony represents God? Specifically, does he not represent the monotheistic God that many children Anthony's age are taught to worship in fear? Anthony is an all-powerful tyrant who exercises wrathful violence to impose his will. Anthony demands absolute loyalty and obedience. All things in this town happen by Anthony's hand. When good things happen, Anthony is praised and thanked. When Anthony does horrific and atrocious things, he is praised and thanked even more. Anthony is told that everything he does is right and wonderful, not because everything he does is right and wonderful, but because he is all-powerful and his ego must be assuaged or he will lash out. Anthony not only judges and punishes actions, but he knows, judges, and punishes people's very thoughts. The people must force themselves to think good thoughts pretend to be happy even when they aren't, 
and adulate him every waking second. The distinction here, of course, is that the God sold to us is alleged to be always acting for the greater good, regardless of how our feeble minds miscomprehend it. Anthony is not afforded these assumptions. But for those who grew up in the shadow of conservative fundamentalist religion, may see many parallels between Anthony and the terrifying entity whose unquestioned goodness we must smile and be forever grateful for, or else. I don't speculate that Serling necessarily had this in mind, and if he did, he certainly would have been wise not to admit it. But Serling also carefully hid stories assailing the poison of racism in his episodes, and this could be similar. Further, Serling's version of Planet of the Apes is the only version to openly challenge fundamentalist religion by showing the legal and social enforcement of obedience to the sacred scrolls, which the chimpanzee rulers knew didn't reveal the truth, but instead concealed it. The unquestionable scrolls were used to hide the truth to further the ruler's own purposes. Anyway, there's a lot of food for thought here, and I want to say thank you for the chance to pass along these thoughts on what I felt was a masterpiece of an episode, and again, thanks for all the work you put into creating an excellent podcast. Cheers. Thank you for sending that in, Chad. That's a very interesting theory as well. So I think we've got two solid interpretations there that you can subscribe to or not. But it's good that you're making it snow, Anthony. It's real good. And tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be a real good day. <laughs> the episode as a whole for me isn't just a good Twilight Zone. It's one of the episodes that I hold up as one of the most perfect pieces they ever created. Jerome Bixby's story was great, but Sailing seemed to be able to really tap into why it was. He put up on screen what he could, and what he couldn't, he replaced with other scenes that were so perfectly in keeping with that source material. Everyone in it just seems to get what it's about, and it is a unique story, but they just get it, and they go with it, and they present such a perfect unit, this town that is living in such fear, that if I gave scores to Twilight Zone episodes, this would be 10 out of 10 for me. I just can't fault it. It's often the case in the Twilight Zone that we don't really find out how or why the magical thing happened, or why a particular special object exists. So we very much expect that in the show. But this story takes it one step further. Because this isn't something strange happening to a particular person and altering their life in some way. This time, the strangeness is all-encompassing. And it's already happened. Now they just have to deal with it. This is just another day in Peaksville. Tomorrow nothing could happen. Or maybe something worse will happen. That's the beauty of it for me. Their life goes on, but then we have this incredibly nihilistic ending. Just as you think things couldn't get much worse, Anthony seemingly on a whim makes it snow. And all they can do is stand and smile, knowing that it's going to kill their crops and they'll have nothing to eat. Rod Sailing talks about Anthony being one of the special residents of the Twilight Zone. And you'll recall that often in the show I'll talk about Rod Sailing being this 
almost celestial figure in the twilight zone now this is just me a fan coming up with a bit of fantastic nonsense and i know it's not the intention of the episode but when sailing talks of anthony being a special resident of the twilight zone i kind of like to think of him as being the same kind of being as this celestial sailing he has the power to control the twilight zone but with anthony things have just gone a little bit wrong so they leave him there in his own isolated peaksville because while he's there he's not causing any damage elsewhere so left without comment this is just one of the days in the good life of anthony fremont of a woman in transit. Helen Foley, age 27. Occupation, school teacher. Up until now, the pattern of her life has been one of unrelenting sameness, waiting for something different to happen. Helen Foley doesn't know it yet, but her waiting has just ended. The next step in our journey takes place two decades later, in 1983 when Richard Matheson adapted Jerome Bixby's story again, but this time for the big screen to be directed by Joe Dante in Twilight Zone the movie. Our story opens with a barrage of Twilight Zone references when Helen Foley, a nod to Rod Serling's teacher and the episode Nightmare as a Child, goes into a diner she seems to be wandering without purpose through the towns of the Twilight Zone itself. Okay, I give up. Where am I? Well, you're not lost. It looks like you missed a turn off at Clifford Mill. Uh, right there. Yeah. Okay. Half mile down the road is a gas station. That's Beaumont. You hang it up and you go four blocks. The highway cuts right in front of it. You can't miss it. And you probably go... Hey, kid. Easy on the machinery. Doesn't work right. Kid, I don't build the games, I just keep the quarters. Why don't you stick another quarter and maybe it'll work better? You see, the highway splits right outside of town. It goes off and goes. Walter, the kid is screwing up the TV. Hey, it's his quarter. The TV's free, you know. Yeah, I got 20 bucks on this. Lots of luck. So, uh, where are you headed? Uh, Willoughby. Hey, nice town. In the background sits Bill Moomy in a nice cameo, but I kind of wish they'd given him a bit more to do. A bit more of a substantial part, considering who he is and his importance to the story. But also in the background is Anthony, this time played by Jeremy Licht, who would have been about 13 or 14 by this point. So I think we need to say quite early on that this is a very different telling than what's gone before. Anthony in this version seems to be quite a good kid. He even gets some grief from a guy in the bar, but he lets him be. The original Anthony Fremont 
would have had this guy in the cornfield pretty quickly. And then there's the world itself. This isn't Peaksville taken away from the world or the rest of the world made to disappear. The world is as it should be. And right now there's nothing to suggest that Anthony is anything other than a normal kid. Now as she leaves this diner, Helen hits Anthony with her car. So she takes him home and it's here that things start to get a bit strange. Hello? It's me! Hi, Anthony! Well, well, well. Now, Anthony's home. Look at this. How do you do? This is Helen. Is that right, Helen? Helen, delighted to meet you. Any friend of Anthony's is a friend. This is Uncle Walt, my sister Ethel. How do you do? Well, now. Did I hear Anthony come in? Yes, there he is. <laughs> this is my mother and father. Hello. Hello. This is Helen. Helen Foley. Oh, Helen. Delighted. It's a pleasure to meet you, Helen. <laughs> she gave me a ride home, did she? You don't mean it. Oh, very generous of you. Yes, well, I'm afraid we had a little accident. In this house, cartoons are almost always playing on television in the background. And when Helen goes upstairs with Anthony, we see that it's quite different from the communal living spaces downstairs, which are more or less normal. But upstairs, everything starts to become more and more like a cartoon. Anthony's imagination has shaped this space into a kind of real world cartoon. We later find out that Anthony actually disposed of his parents in some way, and that the people in the house are surrogates brought here and kept by Anthony. Now to enjoy this version of It's a Good Life, I think you need to divorce yourself from the original to a degree. Make no mistake, the original is a far superior product than what we get here, but Matheson has tried to bring us a different take that has its own direction, and I think its own subtext too. This was the middle of the 80s, three years after Spielberg made E.T., and although Spielberg didn't direct this segment, this is an era when Spielberg and others like him were showing us that the family unit wasn't always the mum and dad and 2.4 children that entertainment had showed us before. Anthony, as played by Licht, is a 14-year-old without a family of his own. He's admittedly responsible for his parents' demise, so we hear, but... He's spent his life since trying to fill that void. He's kind of like the child at the foster home who's now at an age where nobody really wants him because all they want are the younger kids, the ones who they can mould into their own child. Whereas Anthony has to mould everything else to try and fit him. But you just can't force something like that. This Anthony doesn't want people to be scared of him. He wants them to stay because they want to stay, to stay with him. But they are scared, and all that they can do is try to appease him, like Mr. and Mrs. Fremont in the original. I told you. They hate me. They want to send me away to someplace bad, just like my real mother and father did. That, that, that's not right, Anthony. You know we wouldn't do that. No, we love you, Anthony. Honestly, we do. Sure. They're afraid of me. Everybody is. That's why they act that way. And I do everything for them. 
They could just sit around and watch TV all day. No one has to do a thing, not a thing. And I'm real good all the time. That's right, you're a good boy, Anthony. You're a good boy. We love you. Yeah. Well, then I wonder who wrote this note. I wonder who called me a monster. It wasn't me, Anthony. Well, I'd never do anything like that. You know that. Don't look at me. But whereas in the original our sympathies did lie with Mr. and Mrs. Fremont, in this version I feel like they sit more with Anthony himself. His patchwork family aren't particularly likeable. Now admittedly it's not their fault that they're there, Anthony has brought all these people here against their will, or at least kept them here against their will, so they have got every right to be ticked off. But in keeping with this whole theme of Anthony as the unwanted kid at the foster home, these are essentially the foster carers who try to appease him and keep him happy without actually having any genuine feeling towards him. Now that's not me being critical of foster carers in any way, I know they do amazing work and their compassion is genuine, but I think this is trying to show us that inherent confusion within Anthony and essentially the child's perceived notion that they're not truly wanted because they're not flesh and blood relatives, whether that's true or not. But it's manifested here in a more literal way. Now remember what Douglas Brody said earlier about Anthony being the product of a generation that tried to appease their offspring rather than discipline or guide them? And I think that's even more obvious here because this version shows us that true affection comes from both appeasement and a certain amount of control. At one point, Anthony creates this grotesque cartoon-like creature in the living room and everyone is cowering in fear. But that element of control begins when the character of Helen Foley uses a lie from the original but in quite a different way. Wish it away, Anthony. Wish it away. When Mr. Fremont said that, he was almost begging Anthony to send Dan Hollis to the cornfield to spare them and Dan the horror of what he'd been turned into. But he knew it was pretty much one of the only things he could ask Anthony to do because Anthony was always sending things to the cornfield. But in this version, this is where Helen Foley begins to treat Anthony with a firmer hand. She's not begging him, she's giving him direction. And not only does Anthony need it, but he wants it. He wants the boundaries that good parenting gives. He wants an adult in his life to be an adult and not a fawning sycophant. And that's what Helen promises as she and Anthony drive away to their future. Anthony, take us back. Take us back. You can leave too? Oh. And go where, Anthony? I've seen what you can do. I know you have a power, a gift, that makes you special. You better be careful. For one day, may become too big for you to control. Now maybe, just maybe, 
together we can master it and learn from it. Use it in ways you never thought of before. I'd like to be your teacher, Anthony, and your student. You'd stay with me? Yes. Always? So we have this ending where Helen promises to teach Anthony and in a way he will teach her as well. And in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grimes Jr. documents an interview with Richard Matheson where he says, I was caught to task by a lot of fans on that one. They cannot stand happy endings. They love to have stories end on a bleak, dark, fatalistic note so that they can all shudder and go, ooh wasn't that wonderful. I decided, oh screw it, I wanted to see if I could put a positive ending on it. It didn't work too well the way it was done, but I still stand by it. Up until that point, I thought that Joe did a marvellous job. And I myself, I'm actually okay with it, you know, I've already had to divorce myself from the original to a degree. So I think on this viewing, the movie version has been a bit of a revelation for me. You know, we've talked about it before on the show in a kind of roundtable chat a few years ago. And I listened to that again recently, but I feel my appreciation has grown a bit now. It doesn't hold a candle to the original version, but it's an attempt to do something a bit different. To add some element of truth to the story that was relevant for those times and what was actually happening in films. So this day in the life of Anthony is... Not so much left without comment as the previous one was. There's definitely a kind of subtext here and a definite purpose, a definite ending, not so much, but as a different take on the material, I think there's some merit here. So up to now, It's a Good Life has had three different versions. The original book version, the television version, and then the film version. Each have their own unique elements. So I think this is a good opportunity to see what that other Twilight Zone did with it. Twilight Zone Radio. Welcome to Peaksville, Ohio, on a hot July afternoon. At first glance, you'd think this is a farm like any other. And the little boy, Anthony by name, is like any other little boy. But Peaksville is a place not found on any map. And those fields of wheat and barley, they're not the only crop. Something else grows in Peaksville, and for want of a better term, we'd call it horror. One day, exactly six years ago, a boy was born. And as far as the people are concerned, that's all that matters. There isn't anything else. Because Anthony controls it all. In just a moment, we'll take a closer look at Anthony Fremont and the people in the village and the village itself. A world in which nothing exists except Peaksville. A world Anthony manufactured and which he now rules with absolute power. 
a nightmare of rare design, located dead center in the Twilight Zone. You will notice that the introduction on Twilight Zone Radio drops that very direct method used by Rod Serling to get a lot of information over to the audience right there and then at the beginning. Mr. Fremont is played by Mike Starr, who is a very recognisable character actor. He's often cast as thugs or gangsters because he has a certain look about him that seems to fit. And he's been in things like Goodfellas, Dumb and Dumber, and several more things. With 220 credits to his name at the time of recording, he qualifies as a hard-working actor of the times, I think. So a softer role for Mike Starr this time round than we usually see him in. Now, I'm not sure which actor played Anthony Fremont in this version. I've struggled to find a good cast list for Twilight Zone radio dramas because I only own them digitally, but I think the kid does a good job. In the Twilight Zone radio version, they have to sell what Anthony is without the benefit of being able to show a look or expression, those withering glances that Bill Moomy would often make. This Anthony has to always verbalise those things. So the effect of that is that this Anthony seems a bit more vicious at times and explicit in his controlling behaviour because we have to get that over to the listening audience. Now the story overall is the same as the TV version but there are a few differences along the way. That incident where Anthony snapped at Aunt Amy and thought at her is actually included in the story, not alluded to as backstory. But there is one difference. Look, boy. Look what Aunt Amy's got for you. Your own bowl of chocolate frosting. You like chocolate, don't you, Anthony? I know I do. Chocolate's good. I don't like her. <laughs> of course you do. She's your Aunt Amy, and she loves you. You know that. I hate her. Oh, that's a good joke. <laughs> a very good joke. It's all for you, Anthony, all of it. And after you've finished, I'll make some more, if you like. As much as you want. Get away. Oh, now, darling. Don't look at me. What? I don't like you to look at me. Hear that, Amy? Anthony's got a point. Why don't you go back in the house for now? So you can help Agnes cook dinner. Yes. Yes, I'll do that. It's going to be a good dinner, isn't it? I believe it will be, yes. You know, just the way he likes it. Don't you? It'll be delicious, Anthony. You'll see. I told you, don't look at me. She's not... I'll make it so she can't look at me. So she can't look at anything ever again. Watch your step there, Amy. I can't see. What do you mean? <laughs> sure you can. That would be some joke. Just go on inside. The light. That's all I can see. The sun. It's so bright. The sun blazing in the sky. Like white fire all around. Amy? Help me. This different telling where Amy isn't the dulled down thing that she became in the original she's actually still mentally the same but now she's blind sets up a little interesting undertone later on for her character 
because she's not now the vacant shell, she actually carries a lot of anger towards Anthony that she'll let slip a couple of times later on. It is only quite subtle, but you can imagine why she would now want to pick up that poker and kill Anthony. Her comments at times really betray what she's feeling inside. But in the overall story, because they didn't use that Rod Sailing very direct introduction, in which we get a very clear picture of what's going on in Peaksville, the episode feels the need to relay all this information later on via Mr. Fremont. Everybody keeps a few things for a while and then they trade off. There's about three books left and each family... Oh no, honey. And each family can keep it for a week and then trade it for something else. Like with the stereoscope the Van Neusens found in their cellar. Or the can of beer that Bill Soames found wedged into an old icebox in the junkyard. I'd better go check on the kitchen. You see, the thing of it is, Anthony, Anthony fixed it so that we're alone in the world. Nothing new ever gets built anymore. Nothing new at all. That's enough. No, it's not nearly enough. Remember six years ago, old Doc Baker, rest his soul, he took one look at Anthony when he was born, and he screamed and dropped him. <laughs> Tried to kill him right then and there. He knew. Somehow he knew what Anthony was, and he thought it would have been better if he had been born dead. But Anthony, my, my son, he whined and let out a cry, and then he'd done this thing. He took his revenge. Oh, didn't he? Please, please, I beg of you, don't! No! And, and, and he... He either destroyed the world and only left this village, or he took the village someplace away from everything. We don't know exactly which, do we? All we know is that we're alone, and there aren't any towns or villages or anything else left except this place. And Anthony, he controls it with his mind. He controls everything. You know, knowing the story as well as I do, it's hard to be detached from it and ask whether someone who doesn't know the story needs all this relayed to them so explicitly and if they do could it not have been sprinkled through the episode a bit more because it does put us in that difficult position of wondering why a character is explaining a load of information to another character who already knows it they use that now quite cliche device of him being so angry and frustrated that he's just blurting it all out but it just doesn't play very well, you know, people don't really talk like this. But overall the story plays how we expect it to, and it's the same high quality that we've come to recognise in Twilight Zone Radio. So we leave the Audio Peaksville in exactly the same place as we leave the television one, somewhere in the Twilight Zone. Look at that, will you? It's snowing outside. Anthony, are you making it snow? Yeah, I'm making it snow. I like snow. So do I. We all do. But that'll kill off half the crops. That's what it'll do, Anthony. And then we won't have anything to harvest or eat. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. But I guess it's good that you're making it snow. It's real good. And tomorrow, tomorrow will be a 
good day, no matter what. A very, very good day. So far in our story, It's a Good Life has come from its roots in print, to television, then film, then radio. So where can it go next? If we look back at the Twilight Zone, the original series, this story is quite unique. Its star was young enough that he had his whole career ahead of him as opposed to others who were at various stages of their lives. But it also leaves us without a resolution. This is just another day in Peaksville. But what about the next day, and the next, and the next year, or the next decade? Could Anthony Fremont ever return as an adult played by Bill Mooney? Well, it turns out that he could. Little Anthony Fremont, age six. I'm Anthony Fremont, all grown up. You're a very bad man. You're a very bad boy. And you keep thinking about me. I'm thinking about me, TV. That's all the television there is. That's right, little Anthony. And me, TV is all the television you need. Watch the Twilight Zone. Weeknights at 9.30, 8.30 Central on me, TV. That's all the television there is. Okay, I'm just playing with you. That was actually an advertisement from MeTV that was run in 2015, where Bill Moomy reprises the role for a little fun promo slot. But earlier than this, he did what I just said. He reprised the role properly. On the 19th of February 2003 was the first broadcast of a show written by Ira Stephen Bear and directed by Alan Croker, and that show was called It's Still a Good Life. Well, <clears throat> that, was, that was a real treat, and as far as I'm concerned, if, I, if that bookends the whole bit, you know, that's, that's cool. Uh, my friend and neighbor, Ira Bear, was offered the opportunity to produce a revival of The uh, Twilight Zone for, uh, I think it's UPN, and he came to me. I had done a Star Trek Deep Space Nine for him. Our kids went to school together. We're good friends. He came to me and he said, um, boy, I don't know if I'm going to take this gig. You know? And I remember saying, you have to take this gig. You have to. And he was like, and I said, you have to because you can protect it. I said, you'll protect you know, the legacy of the Twilight Zone, you have to take that responsibility. And I think I really was a pivotal, a pivotal uh, part of his, you know, uh, decision to take that gig. Because I did feel like if you don't do it, someone else is going to mess it up. And you can't let the Twilight Zone get messed up. I would have preferred initially, don't do it. Don't anybody do it. The Twilight Zone is Rod Serling's, you know, leave it Rod Serling's. Cause in history, when we look back on the Twilight Zone now, there's going to be kind of three appendages, and two of them aren't connected to Rod Serling, and I don't really think that that's necessarily a good choice. But if they're going to go ahead and do it, Ira, please do it. You have to do it. And this was long before um, we knew that we were going to do a sequel to It's a Good Life. That was actually my idea. You know, he took the series, and he started doing it, and I said to him, wouldn't it be interesting to see what Anthony Fremont was up to now? 
And he went, oh, yes. And, I, and Cloris was a, a friend. I had been in a band with her son, George, and I saw her, you know, reasonably often. I said, I'll, I, we could get Cloris. I know she'd do it. And he was like, wow, that's an idea. So I wrote a treatment for what I thought it would be like. And he wrote a treatment, and we exchanged them. And his treatment included my daughter, Liliana, who had started working on camera, you know, a little earlier than that. And so I really liked, you know, his idea. It was like, wow, wow, <laughs> how cool if we could go back to something that classic. I mean, TV Guide had called It's a Good Life one of the best 100 shows of television, which is a very, you know, I mean, it's, it's nice. It's not going to get you pizza, but it's still nice. It's very flattering to, to be a part of something like that. So to include my daughter and work with Cloris again was just too good not to do. And Ira is a very honorable man. And obviously, you know, we went with his outline. And he gave me his word as a gentleman that if I didn't like this script, he wouldn't do it, that he wouldn't do it with anyone else. He would not cast anyone else to do this. And if I didn't feel the script that he delivered to me was something Rod Serling would have given a thumbs up to, that he said, well, I'll, I'll pull the plug on the whole thing, which was very generous of him. Uh, and I, I loved his script. He took some suggestions that I made and tweaks and things like that. We got Cloris on board and uh, it was, a beautiful experience and a real rare opportunity to return to something that is a benchmark in your career and feel good about it, you know? So um, that was a real blessing. Forty years ago, Rod Serling introduced us to a monster. A monster so powerful he was able to make the world disappear just by using his mind. For the residents of Peaksville, Ohio, a nightmare had begun. The monster knew their every thought, could feel their every emotion, and when they made him angry, which was often, he would banish them into a cornfield from which there was no return. And the most frightening thing about this monster was that he was only six years old. Now, it's 40 years later, and the people of Peaksville are still in hell. Oh yes, there's one other thing. The monster now has a child of his own. And though she possesses none of her father's powers, he still loves her very, very much. It's Still a Good Life carries on the tradition of the original story being quite unique in The Twilight Zone. We pick up Anthony's story 40 years later, played again by Bill Moomy. But this time he brings his real-life daughter Liliana Moomy along as well playing Audrey Fremont, Anthony's daughter. Now, as I said, this was written by Ira Stephen Bear, who executive produced the whole of this Twilight Zone reboot. Perhaps his most famous creative endeavor is executive producing and writing Deep Space Nine for the Star Trek franchise, but he's been a constant presence in television for many years. When It's Still a Good Life starts, it wastes no time in showing us where Anthony Fremont is in his life. When his daughter Audrey is playing with her friend Timmy and she falls from a tree, Anthony comes out of the house to see what's happened. Knowing what we know about him, 
we fear the worst. But Timmy is saved by Anthony's daughter asking him not to hurt her friend and some well-practiced motherly comments from Agnes Fremont, again played by Cloris Leachman. Timmy escapes punishment by Anthony, but when his father arrives to collect him, that's a different story. Tell me something, George. What kind of a boy pushes a little girl out of a tree? Did you do that, son? It was an accident. Well, it had to be. Timmy's a good boy. Agnes, I told you this wasn't a good you idea. Told her what, George? It was nothing, Anthony. It was nothing. Why wouldn't you want your son to play with my daughter? I didn't say that. No, but you're thinking it. You're thinking it right now, aren't you? No. I thought you were my friend. Anthony, I am. Then why are you sweating? No, it's hot out here, isn't it? I'm not hot. Mom, are you hot? Anthony, don't. I've been around people like you all my life. People who pretend to be my friend, pretend to like me. But you don't like me, do you, George? This is a pretty intense scene. We know what Anthony is capable of, but we hope that perhaps age has mellowed him and made him more reasonable. But Anthony has grown up without anyone ever telling him that he's wrong and dishing out punishment whenever he feels like it. He's even put himself in the role of victim, saying that he's grown up his whole life with people pretending to be his friend, pretending to like him. And in a nice touch, Timmy's dad, George's fate, is one that Anthony spoke about in the original episode. You're everybody's favorite. I heard Tommy think one time, I don't remember when, but sometime, that I shouldn't wish away all the automobiles and things, and electricity. They said that it wasn't good that I did that. Somebody thought that one time. Who? Who thought that? Oh, why, that was, uh... Teddy Reynolds who thought that. He owned the farm up the road. He shouldn't have thought those bad thoughts. That's why I made him go on fire. So we soon find out that Anthony's daughter is pretty special herself. She too has special powers. And she tells us that Anthony can't actually read her thoughts. And when Mrs. Fremont discovers this, she starts to help Audrey develop her powers. How wonderful is it to have Cloris Leachman back as Mrs. Fremont, not only having Bill Moomy provide that continuity, but then we have Cloris Leachman as well. Now John Larch, who played Mr. Fremont, lived until he was 91 years old, and thankfully we still have Cloris Leachman with us now. She was born in 1926 and 20 years later became Miss America in 1946. And having majored in drama, she got her first screen credit in 1948. 
Now this wasn't her first exposure to the work of Rod Serling. In 1956 she starred in a movie called The Rack with Paul Newman, and the writer of the teleplay of The Rack was of course Rod Serling. Now I haven't seen that film and it is available out there, and hopefully I'll get around to that someday. Now Cloris Leachman has been pretty much constantly working since she began working, but the role of Mrs. Fremont is her only part in the Twilight Zone. She would, however, appear in Night Gallery as a character called Mrs. Fulton in the story You Can't Get Help Like That Anymore. And Cloris is as busy as ever these days and was recently in the TV series American Gods. She is really such a, a dependable and fantastic actor. She does comedy really well. We've seen her in shows like Malcolm in the Middle, but she can also do drama really well. She knows her craft inside and out by now, and I think she does a fabulous job in this. And we'll speak about her best scene maybe in a little while. I don't believe it. Agnes, it's what we've always dreamed about. Someone with the power to- Finally get rid of that monster I gave birth to. When I think of all the suffering, all those people sent away. My husband, your husband, even his own wife, the entire world, he took everything. Left us nothing. If only I'd been strong enough, brave enough to bash his head in years ago. No one blames you, Magnus. But will Audrey be strong enough to stand up to him? Well, she will be. I'll make sure of it. So this is some interesting stuff. We learn that actually Anthony had a wife. So it kind of raises the question, did he genuinely fall in love with someone and did someone fall in love with him? You know, he has a daughter, so she must have had a mother. But the set of circumstances in which this would happen is, I guess, caused to pause a moment and wonder how it could happen because Anthony is such a hated person in the town. So there is a possibility that maybe he exercised some form of control over someone that he liked, or maybe someone just felt that they had to go along with this relationship with Anthony. I mean, that's a story in itself. Can you imagine Anthony declaring his affection for you, but you're too scared to say, no, I don't want to be with you and just having to go through this torturous marriage or, or whatever. I mean, like I said, that's a story in itself. But we don't really find out the ins and outs of that in the episode. All we know is that she ended up in the cornfield. Our next scene takes place in a bowling alley and Anthony bowls a perfect game and everyone gives him this completely over-the-top round of applause. And there is a sense here that Anthony sometimes becomes quite irritated by this constant praise and approval he gets ticked off by it because a child as he was in the original with a simple mind getting every wish fulfilled is one thing but as rocky valentine found out in the episode a nice place to visit part of being fulfilled in life is the struggle and i think this is starting to creep into anthony's life too and the insincerity by which everyone is always complimenting him is now starting to grate him 
And this comes to a head when he tries to get one of the townspeople to challenge him at bowling. This time, concentrate. I, I will. We'll see. Not even trying. Yes, I, I am, Anthony. I'm trying really hard. Somebody do something. Agnes? Anthony, please. Everyone knows you're the best bowler in town. Well, they could at least try and beat me. That would make me happy. Don't you want me to be happy like everyone else? What about you, Joseph? Do you want me to be happy? <laughs> Wanna play a game of pinball with me? We all know Anthony and what he's capable of, and I think Mumi really brings a great menace to these scenes, and they are pretty suspenseful too. The music at times is laid on a bit heavy, but it's Bill Mumi who makes it, and his annoyance doesn't seem to be coming anymore from people not doing what he wants them to do. But when he challenges them and they back down, that seems to annoy him more than anything. And when he picks up his daughter and she says to him, can we go home? I'm tired. And he says, I'm tired too. He's talking about more than just day-to-day -day fatigue. He's tired of the world he's created. A world where he can't go beyond the borders. And everyone he comes across is just a fawning weakling. Now, throughout the episode, Agnes discovers that not only has Audrey got the ability to make things disappear, but she can bring things back, and we have quite a sweet scene where we see Agnes and Audrey looking through pictures, and we see John Larch, and then Audrey brings back Agnes a watch that her husband had given to her and Anthony had made disappear. And we learn that actually, Anthony can't bring things back. But when Anthony discovers that Audrey has power and that Agnes has been keeping it from him, he calls a town meeting in the bowling alley the next day. So Audrey, of course, is played by Liliana Mumi, and she would have been about nine years old at this point, which makes her about 23 now. And she's been working steadily ever since. A lot of her work seems to be voice work in children's shows and... I think she does a good job here, and having that family connection with Bill Moomy really brings a, a great quality to their scenes together. So Anthony gathers everyone together in the bowling alley and says that he's going to choose people to be punished because people have been sneaking around behind his back. And it's here that Agnes Fremont gets to say what we always wished she would. For 40 years! I did nothing while you tortured the people of this town. I, I, I sat back and watched while you destroyed everything I cared about. Everything I loved. Not everyone. You love me. Love you? Love you? I curse the day I gave birth to you. Night after night, I lie awake in bed, thinking of ways to put an end to this madness to put an end to you. And you want to know why, Anthony? Because you are a bad man. A very bad man. The worst that ever lived. Mom, I'm warning you. You are a monster. 
a spoiled, vicious monster. And if anybody deserves to be in the cornfield, it's you! The speech that Agnes Fremont gives is good and Cloris Leachman, of course, delivers it well. It actually starts to crack Anthony's veneer. It may be the only time since Dan Hollis that anyone has really stood up to him like this and it's starting to hit home. And for us, the audience, this is a real release. We've wanted to see someone do this for a long time, particularly Mrs. Fremont. We've wanted her to say that Anthony isn't actually a good boy and the things he does aren't good things. But then Audrey does something that shocks even him and she makes everyone go away. But when it's only Anthony and Audrey left, even Anthony starts to get lonely. So Audrey brings everything back and she and Anthony head out to explore the world that hasn't existed beyond the town borders for 40 years. This 2000s version of The Twilight Zone is quite maligned. It's not particularly appreciated and it does get a bit of a bad rap all round. But whether the series as a whole works is one thing. But if nothing else, I am grateful that it gave us this episode. The original Twilight Zone had very few stories that had a logical next chapter. Characters met their fates, they received their cosmic justice or their just rewards. But It's a Good Life was a slice of life in the town of Peaksville. No comment, no lessons, just an introduction to one of Twilight Zone's special residents. This character had many days like this, and now we get to see another. What a wonderful opportunity to be able to take advantage of the very special and unique circumstances of It's a Good Life. Cloris Leachman still alive and well and working. Bill Moomy having only been a child then, now the perfect age to give us another chapter and bring his own daughter along with him only a few years older than he was when he played Anthony. I think fandom can often be quite precious about some things and say we shouldn't do this or we shouldn't do that and treat things as sacred and untouchable. But in this case where the stars seem to align at just the right time, a new Twilight Zone series, original Twilight Zone stars at the perfect age to come back, I think this had to happen because, although it was a bit of a risk in case it turned out to be not very good, for me it was a risk worth taking and what we ended up with is not only an interesting compare and contrast to two very different ages of television, but a really enjoyable episode of The Twilight Zone. If ever there's a time to leave aside concerns or questions about whether The Twilight Zone should or shouldn't continue without Rod Serling. I think It's Still a Good Life is a reminder that it was also special because of people like John Larch, Cloris Leachman, and Bill Mooney. Airplane? I brought it all back so you won't be lonely anymore. What? You brought what back? Everything. All the different countries, the cities. You think we could visit New York? New York's a big place. Lots of people. Yeah, and they all better be nice to us, or you know what we'll do to them. 
Excuse me. You folks know the way to Highway 10? And after New York, we can visit all kinds of places. I've never been anywhere else but Peaksville. It'll be fun. You'll see. Hey, buddy, a deaf? Are you happy now, Daddy? You bet I am, honey. It's gonna be a good day. Real good day. So we began with Jerome Bixby's short story. We carried on to the Twilight Zone in 1961. Then in the 80s we went to Twilight Zone the movie. But then the story came to radio and television once again. But there is another chapter to this story that unfortunately I can't bring to you. Rod Serling before his death was working on a movie version of It's a Good Life. I don't know what still exists of that, whether it was just a treatment or a first draft. I don't know what he intended to do to expand the story into feature length. But whatever it is or was, I think it's a shame that it never saw the light of day. If these adaptions of Jerome Bixby's story show us anything, it's that different takes on the same material can be interesting, they can be valuable. The tweaks to each version can give us a different experience, a different message. Perhaps inadvertently, apart from in the case of the 2000s Twilight Zone, which was a purposeful progression, each story actually builds into a life story for Anthony. He grows, but again, apart from that one version, the story around him stays the same. By retelling the story of It's a Good Life but with Anthony at different ages, it does show us what his growth and development could have actually been like. We first see him at age three working on pure childish instinct, more at peace with the simple wants of animals. He is all-powerful, but with the very binary understanding of a three-year-old, things and people are either just good or bad depending on how they make Anthony feel. When he's six years old in the original Twilight Zone, he has a bit more understanding. He now knows that he can use these powers to make the world he wants it to be in a more conscious way. But he can still act out of anger, or as we hear in the radio version, out of cruelty, getting a twisted pleasure from causing pain to others, like a boy pulling the legs off a spider the lack of parental control is really starting to manifest now. The Twilight Zone, the movie version of Anthony, is 14. He's a teenager. His understanding has grown, but now he actually understands what he's lost. His actions as an impulsive child have cost him everything, and he desperately tries to recreate it, to get things back, but he can't. This Anthony doesn't want to hurt people anymore but he can't change what he's already done. Then, when he's in his mid-40s, in the early 2000s, we get the original Twilight Zone Anthony back, but he's grown bitter and resentful and sick of people fawning around him and telling him things are good, but he's just too addicted to that power that he can't just let it go. And it's only seeing his own actions magnified by what his daughter does that he realises that maybe he has done wrong. 
but now it's his daughter who needs that firm hand, the hand that Helen Foley gave the alternate version of Antony. But will he be able to give it to her? Perhaps if that Forever in Development Twilight Zone series comes about, we'll be able to find out. So not so much left without comment because there has been some comment here, but I only wanted to introduce you to one of the Twilight Zone's very special citizens as we explored the good lives of Anthony Fremont. And if, if by, by some, some strange, strange chance, chance you should ever run across him, you'd best think only good thoughts. Fremont wants you to think happy thoughts, and you better do as you're told. Anything less than that is handled at your own risk. Because if you do meet Anthony, you can be sure of one thing. You have entered the Twilight Zone. Mr. Serling. This is the lobby of an inn in a small Bavarian town, and next week we'll enter it with a former SS officer. It's the first stop on his road back to relive a horror that was Nazi Germany. Mr. Joseph Schilkart and Mr. Oscar Berege demonstrate what happens to the monster when it is judged by the victim. Our feeling here is that this is as stark and moving a piece of drama as we've ever presented. I very much hope that you're around to make your own judgment. <laughs> 